I would like to share with you, uh, continuing the series uh, on the church, but I'm going to, we're going to just take a slight turn, still within that series, and uh, focus on a particular passage um, in the Old Testament. But before we go there, uh, if you can turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we were looking at the four aspects of church, very basic aspects that were, were, were focused on, that were devoted to, the church devoted themselves to these four things. In response to Peter's message or sermon, to repent in view of the spirit that who is going to be given and the corruption of this age, right? To escape the corruption of this age and to receive the, the Holy Spirit that has been promised. And we saw that um, in verse 42 of chapter 2 of Acts, I'm reading from the NASB, okay? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So last week we spoke about this focus on prayer. Now in some ways, we as a church have been talking about prayer for ever since we started. In some ways, uh, everything that we speak about is our connection with God. So in some ways, prayer is always going to be in the center of everything. And in, the, and, and in that sense, uh, today's message about prayer it's still going to be about prayer. It's, but at the same time, there is a certain aspect of prayer that I feel the Lord is putting upon my heart and possibly for the next few weeks. But let's have a look at this. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, verse 44. All those who were believed was together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them all with all as anyone might have need, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. So there's this aspect of prayer that gave rise to, along with these, the other three foundational things, awe, miracles. Signs and wonders. And the way they lived their life was in common. Yeah? In common. There was not this individualistic narcissism that's there. That got broken down. And they were in common. Yeah? This is amazing. I always feel that um, subsequent to verse 42, all that all came about, the signs and wonders, the awe, the, um, the, the, the not holding anything that they had as their own, was a supernatural outflow of prayer, breaking of bread, eating the body and blood and the, of the Lord Jesus, devotion to the apostles' doctrine, as well as the fellowship. I believe that this was an outflow, a supernatural outflow. It doesn't just happen. And just being able to have all things in common and to be able to um, um, devote themselves to each other not and not and even selling their property and possessions and sharing them with anyone that might have need. That, was not, that, that I believe is supernatural. It's not socialism. Okay? It's not socialism. Socialism is a construct that human beings have, have created. It has its pros and its cons. But we are always talking in Scripture not about social, uh, social or human constructs as our root. It's always going to have to be from God. And there may be some things that look like socialism, but actually what we're talking about is not that, not a political construct or a social construct, but about something that springs from a whole different spring, a whole different root. Okay, as a, res as a result of that, it's easy for us to um, confuse the things of God with the things that have been created from a different from a from a different root or from a different spring yeah and we're going to be doing looking at that, some of that a little bit more always remember this that as a, as a as a church we do not speak for any political uh persuasion we do not speak for that we don't 
speak from that level of reality. We speak from the Scripture. And insofar as we are speaking from God's heart, there is a way in which God is always criticizing, judging the things that human beings create, including good things. Including good things. So we have always got to, in the midst of the society we're living, we have to live from a different route. And there are going to be times in which the things of the world use similar words, and we call this neology or neologizing, in which the same word is used as words that are used in the Bible, but they have a completely different root. And every word has its movement. Every concept has its movement. The things of God that come from a different root, at first, may not be distinguished from the things of the world or the words of the world, but they will move in a different place. And the things of the world that may have been neologized, that means um, sort of made like the things of God, will move a different place. Sometimes, only after a little while, will these differences begin to show themselves and they will begin to diverge. And um, we will maybe talk about that later. But right now, I want to talk about prayer. Okay? Prayer... took on a whole different power, meaning, and depth in Hezekiah's time. In Hezekiah's time. And so, for the rest of the sermon, we will look at uh, Isaiah chapter 36, and 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 then we'll peep into 37. Uh, Isaiah chapter 36, and and chapter 37. I wasn't aiming to look at it, but uh, as I was praying, the Lord impressed upon me Isaiah chapter 36. And, uh, and so as I read it, it gripped me and it placed before me something that I think uh, you will be able to identify in the days to come. So we're just going to read it, Isaiah chapter th- 36, reading from verse 1. And we will only take a bite out of that today, okay? Because there's so much. Now, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rebshakeh, he's uh, an ambassadoric kind of high military commander, from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. Incidentally, Cindy and I were at the British Museum uh, a few years ago. And there's a whole section of British Museum that is devoted to Assyriology, right, about Assyria. And they they brought back from Assyria huge monuments, huge parts of um, uh, Nineveh. And you could actually see... um, what you call bas reliefs, things that were put on the walls, that were molded into wall, about that actual besiegement of Lachish, okay? one of the, the Judaic towns. And you can see the slaves and you can see that the, the utter cruelty the Assyrians had. Now, what the Assyrians wanted to do is to intimidate and completely frighten the BGBs out of, of their enemies. And what they would do is that they would make very public their, the way in which they dealt with any enemies, enemies that they had. And you can see, we could see in the, in the British Museum pictures of people's skins being, being plastered onto the wall. The whole wall was plastered with the skins of uh, high-ranking officials that they had done. So what happens is that the king of, the, the, the king of Assyria had a, a system of con- conquering, of conquest, that would make an example of the people that he had uh, conquered. Yeah? And so when Reb Shakeh comes, he mentions Lachish. Okay? Lachish is one of the Judaic towns. And as he mentions that, you can imagine the kind of intimidation and fear that he was putting upon them. Okay? Then, verse 3, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. 
And Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah the king, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. And you can see the, 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 the theme of <coughs> Rabshakeh's um, speech is, is, is basically poking holes at their confidence. Said, what kind of confidence do you have? What is the basis of your confidence? Yeah? Remember that Hezekiah was a very ingenu- ingenuous king. He had built up this elaborate system of uh, underground uh, water, water tunnels that exist even to today. Yeah? He was a wise king. He was a prosperous king. He was a king that brought Israel into a new, uh, Judah into a new prosperity. He was a, he was a by and large, a righteous king. And he, and he had instituted these reforms in Israel to try to make Israel more godly. Now, there were certain things that he did that were not smart. Okay? And one of the things he did was that knowing the rise of Assyria, okay, the Assyrian Empire, he made an alliance with Egypt. And as a result of making that, that alliance with Egypt, he hoped to have some security for the, the city of Jerusalem and for, and for Judah. Not realizing that Egypt never kept its promise. And the only time it kept its, its, its promise, when they went out against Assyria, they were completely routed, completely destroyed. So not only was Egypt unreliable, not keeping its promise, but also in the one time that they keep that promise, they were completely destroyed, right? And so Hezekiah is a godly king, he's a smart king, he's a dynamic king, um, but at the same time, there was some mixture. And what he had done is that in order for him to be able to get the help of Egypt, he took out the gold from the doors of the temple, yeah, huge amounts of gold, and he paid it to Egypt so that he would get protection from Egypt. And as a result of that, the children of Israel, or rather the, 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 the Jews, every time they go into the temple, they look at the doors with the, the, the gold ripped up, and they will remember how much gold was given to Egypt to make an alliance with Egypt. Yeah. And so, Rabshakeh comes in, and he says, and he confronts, the godliness, he confronts the ingenuity, he confronts the power, the strength of, uh, of the, the army that Hezekiah had really built up. And he says, that's nothing, nothing to me. Right? On what do you base your confidence? Okay? Your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. Yeah? Only empty words. Now, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who rely on him. You rely on him, it will be like a reed that pokes pokes you. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? What Hezekiah had done is that he had instituted these reforms because of the fact that they had proliferated all over Judah, upon every high mountain, self-styled um, sacrifices and altars. Yeah? They were individualistic altars that expressed the freedom that each region had to worship God the way they wanted to. But this went against um, the, 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 the law in Leviticus and says you will not create these altars everywhere that you, you had. And what Hezekiah was doing was that he was bringing to common, to, to, to one place in his reforms, the, the, the worship of Yahweh. Okay? Which meant that they all had to come down to Jerusalem to, to, make, their, to make their yearly sacrifices. So if you say to me, you trust in the Lord, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has taken to Jude and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Now therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to, on your part, 
to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt or chariots and of horsemen? Have I now have 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 I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? Isn't it God that has brought me up? Look. God's punishing you. You destroyed all those altars. You should have given them the freedom to do it the way they wanted to. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. That's what um, Rebshakeh is saying. So he's giving a false narrative and a, a false prophecy. Then Eliakim and Shebna and Lujoah said to Rebshakeh, speak now to your servants in Aramaic. Aramaic is a lingua franca for international um, uh, uh, correspondence and intercourse. For we understand it, and do not speak with us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rapture said, Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Then Rapture stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me, come out to me, and eat each his vine and each of his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own. Like your own, your own land, a land of grain, new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the land of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamat and Apad? Where are the gods of the Sephabim? And where when they have they, when they delivered um, Samaria from my hand. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their hand from my hand that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word for the Lord's commandment was, do, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rapshakeh question that I want to pose for us is, in the context of prayer, what do you do when you have no answer? Yeah? You have no answer to the circumstances that have come upon you, the lack of answers to prayer that you had, answers, you, you have the lack of empirical or logical answers to the things that the enemy is saying to you. What do you do when you have no answer. And there are times in which the Lord allows us to come into situations in which there is no answer, no plan, no genius Hezekiah strategy to combat the very things that we fear. There are times in which in prayer, we do come to situations in which we have no answer. And the devil will, will encircle us, surround us, and throw over us a new reality. A reality in which the king, the great king, is not Hezekiah, not you, not God, but the king of this world, the empire. He will create a new reality in which it has its own utopia, it has its own promised land to rival the promised land that God has given to us. He will show his relative strength compared with you. You are so puny. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find riders in you. And he will spin an, a virtual world over you. And he will threaten you that if you do not obey, the circumstances will be such that you will drink your own piss and you will eat your own dung. You will be so destitute that there is nothing you can do and you can't answer him. 
Because you do not have in your hands any resource that will be enough. It's like a little pistol going against the, 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 the Luftwaffe. You do not have anything that even comes close to an answer. And sometimes what happens is this. We are faced, in which, faced with the question, what is this confidence that you have? I see your strategy. You've done the best thing that you can. The best, you've done the best, best you can that the world can give you. And it's not enough. It's just not enough. Because there's some other bigger dog. A dog bigger than Egypt. The big dog in your lo- lo- locality. And so, I feel that when we talk about prayer, we have to come to one place in which in prayer, the basis of our prayer and the confidence that we have in our prayer is being tested. Yeah? It's being tested. To such an extent, it's shut down, it's shut down, it's shut down, it's shut down. To such an extent, there's no answer. There's no answer left. Unless God does something, everything back of us, everything that we have, all the array of strategies and all the array of friends that we have and all the array of things that we have been smart and gifted enough to have and to do that are like, you know, every contemporary regional kind of strength that we have, they are nothing compared with the enemy. We are often brought to times in which we are just silenced. Silent. We have no answer, no argument. No argument, no, no, si- no, no, no answer. Nothing to answer. People that we're trying to help, people who are going through a hard time. And we've prayed and we've, uh, we've, uh, we've, we've counseled and we've uh, got all the help that we can. We took all, we've got all the, the friends' help that we can get to try to, to, in, to, to insert them into their situation. Nothing happens. It's not enough. It's not enough. And uh, we have, in situations like that, an intention that we actually are coming against. Not just the circumstance that's a real tough situation, but there is a narrative, there's a, 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 a demonic gospel, put it this way, that the devil has for us. I would like to talk about a little bit about that, just so that we as a church can answer the question, as a church, how do we deal with the narrative and the reality that is perhaps being forced upon us or that is coming to us in a biblical way? Knowing that all politics falls to the ground, all politics fall to the ground. All social constructs fall to the ground. All do-gooding falls to the ground. All the power of NGOs and political parties and, 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 and armies and, war and, and warring, uh, warring factions come to fall to the ground in the midst of all that, right? Because Hezekiah found that all, in spite of his best efforts, nothing happened. It's, here's how the attack comes upon the body. Yeah? The, here it was the body politic. But we can talk about the body in terms of church, in terms of the, 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 the way in which the kingdom happens. Here's how the attack happens. Rabshake comes to him and says, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. The great king is implying that there is one king. We should all know this. You should know this. This is a foregone conclusion. The king, the legitimate king, is the king of Assyria. That's, he's so powerful. Come on, what are you talking about? King Hezekiah? What are you talking about, King Hezekiah? The king is king of Assyria. That is the foregone conclusion that the enemy wants to, wants to give to us. This is the way things are. This is the way the world is. What is your confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. Now, whom do you rely on that you rebel against me as if becoming a dissident is rebelling against the kingdom, the God of this world? Yeah? So in some ways we are, as Christians, 
perhaps one day going to take our place along with many other Christians all over the world who are um, underground Christians. Who knows? I don't know. Okay? But it may be. We need to be ready for that. Today we were hearing about suffering for the sake of Christ. And so the first thing, the thing he does is that he tests our confidence. It tests the confidence. And I think often when um, there is this surrounding scrutiny that's upon our lives, upon our church, what happens is that the scrutiny is attacking our confidence. Right? It's testing out what we base our confidence upon. It's testing out what our defenses are on what we base our confidence. It's examining our confidence. Yeah? It actually can be a really good thing for us, don't you think? Because what the, what, what, what the, the rapture case is saying is, you have confidence in words. You put confidence in words. You put confidence in speaking well. You put confidence in rhetoric and uh, oratorical skills. You put confidence in words of prophecy and words of prediction, and you put confidence in the words of Scripture. Can you really be confident in words? What do you have backing the words? And what Rab Shake is saying is that you have nothing to back your words. You just have words. In peacetime, when there's no attack, your words can be spun nicely. Can be inspiring, can be all that. But actually, you don't have anything behind it. And what happens is that Rapshake is here to test the words that we hold on to in our trust in God. Right? And I find that as a church, what God is leading us into is to be able to hear his voice. But then, not only hearing the voice so that all we have is words, but to actually wait on him and be tested until those words that we get become solid. And sometimes those words can only become solid by standing in the gap, just standing still and letting the the enemy throw all that he can with us and all we can do is to let those words be tested. Let those words be tested. No answer. Doctors can't help. Engineers can't help. Pastors can't help. Counselors can't help. Psychology doesn't help. Nothing. Except these words. And what's been happening is Rabshake is throwing, throwing gauntlets. You got words? Show us. Show us. And that is why it's really important for us to experience the waiting on the Lord so that the words will cause us to gain strength. So the words get con- converted into strength. Yeah? yeah, we will talk about that later. Okay? I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not wanting to go into it so deep. So, but I want to say that there are ways in which God puts our co- our confidence to test. What was the other confidence that he had? They had confidence in Egypt. Right? Confidence in Egypt. That Egypt won't renege. That Egypt would, uh, would be strong enough for them. And they found that that is um, proving bankrupt. I want to I say a word of comfort for those of us who are having a really hard time during this COVID period. It may be that you may be experiencing such a testing so that the very things that you found were helpful to get you in life without COVID were being tested. Suddenly, um, you know, there's a, there was a survey um, conducted, a massive survey conducted in China in which uh, many families during COVID um, were being asked, how is your communication since COVID, right, within the family? You would have thought that in COVID, when you can't go out, 
you will be closer together as a family. And overwhelmingly, the results that came back were that families were breaking up. Because without the, um, the diversion of being able to go out and all that, they were faced up to one another. And all their fears and their, their, their hatred for one another just began to clash. And so, um, the nation of China, like many other nations, are experiencing very similar things. I just want to say that there are times in which, in COVID, we face a test in which our confidence is being examined. Yeah? What is this confidence that you have? And I feel that the Lord has something for us, actually. And that something for us may not be something that we can bring as an answer or as an as a, as a, as a exhibit of confidence that we have. But we have something that the Lord has we'll talk about. These empty words that you come, come against and rebel against me, behold, you rely on this staff, this crushed reed. Wow. How many of us have experienced confidence? Just being shaken, disappointment. You thought this person will help you out. This person can be relied upon. But that person was also being tested. And you wonder whether the words that you've received are really real or not. You know? So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to those who rely on him. Verse 7, But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you will worship before this altar. Now therefore, come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. And I will give you, there are two, two things that I want to say that are uh, very briefly about attacks. The attack ca- that came upon, um, um, upon Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem were basically this argument. You say God is with you. Okay? You say God's with you. But look what you've done. You've destroyed all his altars. You've destroyed diverse, the di- diversity of altars that you have in this land. You've destroyed that. And by doing this, Rabshakeh was really smart. He drove a wedge between the different kinds of people that were in Jerusalem. Because remember, Jerusalem people came from all over Judah to come to Jerusalem. And he drove a wedge between the two of them, all of them. He says, you are so into central control that you've destroyed the creativity and the individuality of all the other cities in Judah. And what he was doing was that he was dividing the whole people up. Right? But may I suggest to you that that's, that is a, a, a ploy of the enemy. What the enemy wants to do is to divide people based upon freedom to self-express. But Leviticus really was clear, you're not supposed to do that because what was happening is that by the time Hezekiah had come, come out, there were all kinds of heretical kind of uh, um, um, mixtures of uh, foreign gods as well God, in all the high places on this. So what, what, what Hezekiah did was he destroyed all the high places. There is a way in which I think sometimes when we talk about having all things in common, we can sometimes miss that. We can only think in terms of all things in common being a socialistic thing. I want to put it to you that actually socialism is not where it's coming from. The having of all things in common was a sense, a certain divine sentiment that caused everybody to feel we are one, we are together in this, and I care for my brother and my sister in a way that is not just individualistic. That when they had all things in common, What it meant was this. We are so together, we so love one another, we are so part of each other, that whatever all the things are, my brother and my sister has access to them. I remember when I was involved in, in in, 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 in the church that I used to be involved in, we were so poor that all the guys in our room had one big cupboard 
Well, it wasn't that big. It was quite big. Six of us living there. And we put all our shirts, we put all our trousers together. We put our socks together, put everything together. And we all shared. And so we never have clothes that fit us. Because we're always borrowing something. My, my shirts were always like, like this. I'm a size 12, 11 and a half, 12. Most of the time I was wearing a size 8 pair of sandals. But I was grateful for that. Because there was never the sense, oh, you're using my stuff and all that, you know. Of course, there were times in which a brother of mine lost my stuff. Which, and when you are very poor, just losing a, a cake of soap is a big deal. It's a big deal. And we will find us getting angry with one another just for a very trivial thing. You lost my toothbrush. You're not supposed to use my toothbrush. You can borrow anything else but not toothbrush. You lost my soap. One day, Malcolm borrowed my shoes and he went up and we were taking care of uh, drug addicts and this drug addict was, I mean, he couldn't help it. He stole that pair of shoes. And Malcolm said, I lost my shoes. I said, <laughs> see, you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to own anything. He said, those are your pair of shoes that I borrowed. You know? <laughs> so there's a way in which you had all things in common. Now, what sometimes the testing of the Lord, the attacks of the Lord upon that, tests our confidence. It tests our, our, our habit, our, our habit of the heart. Robert Bella, of course, in his famous uh, Habits of the Heart, et al., um, talks about a thing called Shilaism. Have you ever heard of Shilaism? Okay, I'll tell you what Shilaism is. Sheila is a person who they interviewed. And she said, this is my religion. I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It is Sheilaism. Just my own little voice. So basically what we've done is that we've taken all the scriptures, which are to a large extent, especially in the New Testament, written to a corporate group of people, and we've done it in an applic individual application. That's not wrong, actually. It's not wrong. But we can sometimes lose that all things in common sense. Does that make sense? And what happens is that division takes place when we are so accustomed to having our own space, uh, having our own way and our own freedom, that any way in which that is uh, attacked is, becomes more offensive than it needs to be. And as a result of that, that was one of the attacks. Um, I'm going to um, move along uh, because we will have time to move back to this. But uh, I want to move into one more attack. Now, therefore, come, make verse 8, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to, on your part, to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official at the least of my master, master servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And what Reb Shakeh does is that he uses a really powerful tactic, tactic which today is used powerfully. And that is ridicule. This is the domain of stand-up comics. Can't stand-up comedians. And the argument, argument is fought, won, or lost by who makes the quip. The French in the 18th, 19th century were very, very good at that, especially French society, upper-class society. And there's a movie called Ridicule. Ridicule. And it's about the devastating effects of ridicule upon individual people. Today, 
if you listen to the debates that are going on, most of the debates are not substantive. It's pure nonsense, pure drivel. It's inspissated nonsense. Because it's all about who gets to say the witty word. Ridicule. Ridicule is so powerful in our self-conscious and vain society that we would rather be out-talked than to be ridiculed. And one of the things that the devil does for all of us is to make us avoid ridicule as much as possible. Okay? Ridicule for being out of fashion, ridicule for being hokey, ridicule for being like those ignorant Christians, ridicule for being one thing or the other. Now what happens is this, and we will talk about that later, there is a way in which the Rabshake he redefines words and causes lump, lumping of characteristics all in one word. And if the word is a negative con- connotation, you could easily be lumped into that grouping of words uh, there. Okay. I'm not going to go into the specifics. But there's a way in which, because of that, that because of our, our values that have evolved, we are so not wanting to be made fun of. We are so not wanting to be lumped with that group or that group. And we can't take it when we are ridiculed. And so, Rabshakeh makes a joke of Hezekiah. He says, like, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find riders on top of them. It's like, terrible. It's just such a, such a swipe. In Malaysia, we call it such a pluck shot. Such a pluck shot. Oh, I'm embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed because I didn't win. It's embarrassed because I got ridiculed. And the, 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 the way in which conversations today happen is wicked. It's wicked, you know. When we want to win an argument by ridicule. And behind that ridicule, there's no logic. It's about sound. It's about catchiness. It's about diction. It's about all these other things. But there's no substance to it. And we become subject to that. I don't want to be like this church. I don't want to be like this kind of Christian. I know, I've heard um, jokes about them. Now, I must admit, I don't mind confessing you, that when I first came to America for many years, more years than I would, I'm happy about, I had heard so many criticisms and ridicule of other Christians that I had decided in my mind, we are never going to be that way. I will never be accused of being hard hand, heavy-handed or being too emotional or, or, too, or, or, or ignorant. I would never be accused of that. I would not be accused ever of being oppressive or being unkind or hard-hearted or anything like that. Okay, good. But I began to realize that there were certain things that I did that were so much in avoidance of those things that I missed out on the precious things that God, God had for me, for me. Have you ever experienced that? I'm so not going to be like this. Ah, I saw how they, minim- they, 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 they minimize her or him in that way. I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to be like those people, narrow-minded. Nobody's saying we should be narrow-minded, but I'm saying that there's a way in which the tactic of the devil is like, Get you there. The, the sum total of all this was that the people on the wall and the people um, who came out, Shebna, Eliashib, and all that, who came up to talk to, to Rav Shakeh, had no comeback. They had no comeback. They had no proof that what they were saying was correct. 
They had no words, no strategy, no power, no armies, no arguments against Rabshakeh. Have you ever found yourself in that situation before? Where it really looks bad. You look really bad. <laughs> no? Yes? I see some very honest people saying, good, I'm with you. I'm with you. Because I have had more times in which I was silenced, no answer, than I would care to <laughs> recount. You sometimes put in a situation where you are trapped. You cannot answer. If you answer, you will have more ridicule. And you really are digging yourself in a hole. I want to hold it there. I just want to hold it there. See, Because this is something we never want to be in. A situation in which your mother, your father, your, your friends, your close ones, the people that mean a lot to you, they just get you there. And sometimes God has us there. We don't have an answer. And the answer, any answer, even a logical answer, that has a comeback, will actually put you into a worse situation. This is what happened. And that's where prayer came in. Okay? Prayer came in. Prayer comes at that most poignant place in which you really, 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 really can't answer. You cannot answer. It's humiliating. It's almost as if all the evidence and all the way things have turned out, all the, 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 the words, the convictions that you had from God turned out the other way. They just turned out sour. And no explanation. If you say a word to try to explain away how the things didn't turn out the way you expected, you will actually lose credibility completely. You already lost most of it. But if you try to squirm out of it, you will, you will get yourself in the worst hole. And all you can do is to say, God, unless you vindicate or you come through, I am completely toast. You're burnt noodles. Yeah? I want to put it to you that you and I are called to step into that place. Because that place is the place of power. So what did Hezekiah say? None of you. And this is where the city was so disciplined. The city was so disciplined. Instead of answering Rabshakeh back, not only did the ambassadors from the, from the Jewish side say nothing, but no one who sat on the wall said anything. That's amazing. If I, it was me, I would send the best debater, not myself, and go and fight it out with that guy so that the people on the wall will hear the other side. True? <laughs> but Hezekiah had told them, you are not to answer a word because that's not where the battle is. Ridicule them back, sure, but that's not what's going to win your war. And so, I just want to say this, there's this place that we all avoid. It's like, we are so embarrassed by it. So put it at, in, 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 a, in, a, in a weak position. And in this place, you just know that the biggest argument, the best argument, the only argument is God coming through. It is in this place that we find that God has brought many of His people, many times His people, when the children of Israel were, were circling the, the walls of Jericho, and the people in Jericho must have been making fun of them seven times, then the last time seven times, seven times again. And Joshua said, you keep quiet. quiet. He remembered the, the previous time, 40 years ago, when Moses sent a Democrat, Democratic delegation of 12 spies to go, 10 of them gave a bad report. And Joshua and Caleb quieted the people. Quiet. But they wouldn't stop. 
this time when Joshua had a chance to send people, he says, no more democracy here. I'm going to send two guys, faithful guys, and they were going to go, and they will not be people who are big talkers. They will not be people who, who, who argue with the flesh. They will be faithful, and he sent those two. There are times in which God brings us to that place, and where our energy goes is not in fighting or strategizing, but actually going into prayer. We have to come to a place where in prayer, we pray and wait upon God until all the voices are silenced. Because do God dwells in that silence. I don't mean silence where you're just being quiet. No. You can be quiet and it becomes louder in your head. Have you found that? I remember when, when, when someone said, you should be silent. I would try to be silent. The more silent I was, all my fears all would come up and speak louder. No, we're talking about an inner silence in which all those voices, the voices of fear, the voices of my own pride, are brought to, brought to an end. Now, if you wait upon him diligently, he will find you. He will put, put that power on you. The silence doesn't come because only, only because you stop speaking. It's because you stop speaking, yes, but the Lord silenced every other voice. I pray that every person in BCF will experience that and function out of that because that, not even prophecy, not even insights, not even whatever, and sometimes not even scripture verses will suffice. What, it has, what happens is this. In the silence, then the voice of the Lord comes. And so he prayed with his garments torn. He prayed. And this is where, verse 21, they said, they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Do not answer him. They had to go to that place. And sometimes, if you're like the kind of person who just can't argue, who can't talk, can't ever, who doesn't, doesn't, a witticism doesn't come to hand, if you're that, don't worry. It will not distract you from coming to the place of God's power. And he comes before him and he waits. That's all. The prayer that just waits until the silence comes. And in that silence, boom. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, son of Amos. Amen? You can have all the strategies, all the wars, all the strategies for war, and all the words and all that. And if the word of the Lord doesn't come to you, that defeats the enemy, you will still be in the same place. So may I say to you, for those of, of you, myself included, who may have been brought to silence, the Lord has a better thing for you. Amen? Let us pray. Welcome you, Lord. Welcome you, Lord. I want to invite you to just set your sights towards God. He alone is my help, is our health and salvation. You may feel that you're in such a weak position. The person you said God is going to heal has not been healed yet. The prophecy you've given that God will do good in the latter end has not happened yet. And I want to invite you to take heart from Isaiah, from Psalm 62. My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation my stronghold, I shall not be greatly shaken. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him.
He only is my rock and salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength. My refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Men of low degree are only vanity. Men of rank unfile. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression. Do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and loving kindness is yours, O Lord. Jesus, we acknowledge that some of us are in not just desert places, but wilderness places. It's wild. And we don't know which way to go. We thank you, we see you, and we hear you, that you are coming. Coming like a rider in the desert, a rider in the wilderness, to meet us right there. So we're thanking you right now, God. Even now we're thanking that we can see you coming and that we're not going to run, but we're going to stand here in this gap where there's nothing in between. The wires are cut. There's a gap. There's no electricity flowing, and yet you're electrifying. You're electrifying this very space that we are standing in because you are the answer, not just for us, not just for our situation, but for this world, Amen. for every nation, for every leader. You are the only answer. Amen. We thank you, Lord, that you are here. Even in the apparent soundlessness, the lack of answers, we thank you, Lord, you are more here than ever before. We ask you that you will cause us to escape our own strategies, our own reliance on Egypt, Escape us. Take Egypt's pokiness out of our hands and free us up to be just with you. In the name of Jesus, we welcome you, Lord. Bless you. anyone has a word, feel free to speak. Speak it forth. Only what God speaks. Even if it's just a phrase, a word. Feel someone's hearing right now. God's saying to you directly, I am the pearl of great price. Mm. You did not make a mistake. It was worth it. It's worth it to give it all. Someone's saying, I gave up everything, and now I have nothing. And the Lord said, just wait. Just wait upon me. You will receive more than you ever gave up.
Does anyone have a word? Amen. Amen. Praise. Amen. Um, I was just saying that um, standing in the gap is sometimes a very lonely place. But the Lord is saying that he is with you. You are not alone. You're never alone. Amen. Someone is struggling with things that others have told them about who they are. And the Lord is saying, don't listen to them. Amen. Don't listen to them. They do not know you. They did not make you. They did not create you. Yes. The Lord alone knows you. And he will reveal precious things to you. Believe him alone. Yes, folks. We thank you, Lord. Supernaturally, you have created a place where every other voice, every voice of our own thought, voice of the enemy, and voices of our own experience, our environment, are supernaturally silenced. They lose their power over us. And they can be distinguished from your voice. Thank you, Lord, that you bring us into this place. And we fall upon your words right now. Fall upon you. We thank you, Lord, that you are our glory and the lifter of our head. We have none of that from our own devices. And we thank you, Lord, for bringing us into this place. Thank you for great things. You have taught us great things you have done. 
great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son, but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Come to the Father, Jesus the Son. Give him the glory, great things he has done. Amen. Amen.